Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts from around the world. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Ida Altman, a professor emerita at the University of, Nor- of Florida, specializing in migration patterns in early colonial Latin America. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Altman. Thank you. So, following the colonization of Hispaniola, the island that now contains the modern states of Haiti and the, the Dominican Republic, colonial ambitions by the newly united kingdoms of Aragon and Castile were turned towards a new island just north of their newly founded colony, the island of Cuba. Following the conquest of Cuba, for the following decades, a sense of frontier-like society emerged in the region, allowing strong and violent men, such as our subject today, Vasco Porcayo de Figueroa, to establish economic and social hegemonies over not only the indigenous communities that existed on the island, but also the Spaniards who had arrived to colonize it. Today, we will explore the life of Vasco Porcayo, who during his life played a role as one of the highest-ranking figures in colonial Cuba. And we will take a close look at this time of growth and development in the newly created colony of Cuba. Now, Dr. Altman, uh, please tell me a little bit about the discovery of Cuba. When was it discovered? Well, Columbus actually reached Cuba during his very first voyage to the Caribbean in 1492. And it was a large island, which he apparently mistook first for Japan, which he had hoped to reach, then subsequently for the mainland uh, and didn't realize it was an island. He sent two men into the interior to try to make contact with local people. They were both multilingual men, but of course they didn't know the local language in Cuba. So they came back and had very little to report, and Columbus then moved on to Hispaniola, and that became their focus. So how ultimately did uh, Spain turn their eyes to Cuba again? How did the, what, uh, when did the colonial expansion begin? Yeah. This took a while. Columbus continued to make voyages of reconnaissance around the Caribbean. Um, So Spaniards mostly focused their efforts on the island of Hispaniola, which is one of the largest islands, um, for more than a decade and a half. And eventually then they started to move to occupy to neighboring islands. So they're moving to places pretty close by, first to Puerto Rico in 1508, Jamaica in 1509, and then finally to Cuba. And in those same years, they were also beginning to move to the mainland. So Panama, they founded Darien in 1511. So this is contemporary, the coast of northern South America also, which they called Tierra Firme. All of that was kind of going on in those same years. So if we look at Cuba on a map, it's not a small island, Um, How did a collection of conquistadores or uh, just expansionists go about taking control of this island? So a man named Diego Velasquez, he had gone to uh, Hispaniola with Columbus on Columbus's second voyage in 1493. Um, He became one of the leaders in conquering the western part of the island of Hispaniola. And he established a town named Salvatierra de la Sabana. Um, That became the base for him to organize an expedition of conquest to Cuba in 1511. Um, And he apparently personally invested 
in the ships that they assembled. So this was kind of his venture. So no conquest is peaceful. Uh, So how violent was the conquest of Cuba? It was a particularly violent conquest from, from what we understand. Given that it was relatively late, as I said, they'd been in Española since 1493, by the time Velázquez and his men arrived, the indigenous people of Cuba had learned a great deal about what they could expect when Spaniards would come to their island. And they had learned this from the people living in Española, with whom they had ties, both of probably exchange but also kinship. Uh, Velázquez established himself at Baracoa, uh, which still exists, at the far eastern end of the island. And then he was joined there by a man named Panfilo de Narvaez, who had participated in the conquest of Jamaica. He came from Jamaica bringing, apparently, 30 crossbowmen, as well as some indigenous people that they recruited in Jamaica, no doubt conscripted. Um, And basically, they just kind of started at the eastern end of the island and worked their way across. Um, There apparently uh, were some native Cubans who tried to avoid conflict with the invaders, tried to offer them hospitality. Um, That doesn't seem to have been very successful. So the Spaniards continued this very aggressive campaign. They basically, as I said, took over the island. They then established a number of towns but, of course, that was not the end of conflict and resistance. So now, following the domination of the island by the Spaniards, uh, there enters our character here, uh, Vasco Porcayo. Uh, before we delve into his life, uh, where do we find most information about him? Is this information that we find straightforward? Yeah, One of the interesting things about Vasco Porcayo that figured, oh, is that there is actually a lot of documentary evidence, and that's kind of unusual for the period. Um, so I wrote an article, which I know you've read, um, that appeared in an edited book that I did with, um, edited with David Wheat. Um, and the information I used about him is mostly to be found in the records, in the archive of the Indies in Seville, and that is the main repository for most of the Spanish records that relate to the Americas. So pretty much everything is there. Now there's an additional episode in his life that I did not write about in that article, and that is the time when he briefly participated in the expedition of Hernando de Soto that left Cuba to go to Florida uh, and then you know, moved around in the southeast. There are several accounts of that, that and they mentioned him. Um, he did not have a good experience there, and he went back to Cuba very quickly. Um, But one of the interesting things is that given all this evidence, there still are significant gaps in what I could find out about him. And there also is some very inconsistent information uh, that in the end made me think there may be two people named Vasco Porcayo in the period. Um, I I never was, I have not been able to resolve that, but I think I'm right. Um, because there's a lot of confusion about whether he went to Mexico, how long he stayed in Mexico. I don't. If he did go to Mexico, it wasn't for very long. Well, uh, so he was quite a traveler. So what what do we know about his early life, and how did he end up in the Caribbean? Yeah. 
Well, quite ironically for me, he originated in the city of Cáceres in southwestern Spain, which actually was the subject of my dissertation and my first book, and I don't recall ever coming across references him, to him when I did that research. But that could also be because it was very early. He went very early to the Caribbean. Um, I would love to go back and look to see if I can find anything about his early life. Um, he went to the Caribbean, and we know that he went with Diego Velázquez in the conquest of Cuba in 1511. So at some point before 1511, he was already in Hispaniola. Um, the question of when he was born, again, very confusing. I would say probably sometime between maybe 1490 and 1495. The evidence, again, contradictory. In all likelihood, he was in his teens, maybe his late teens, when he first went to the Caribbean. Um, that would have been a typical age for a single man, single young man to go. So it's a lot of adolescents running around in this period. They're, they're young guys, a lot of them, very young. So I would like to point out that you mentioned that Porcayo is from uh, southwestern uh, Spain. Right. And that's from, uh, and that region is known as Extremadura. Right. And so uh, something interesting that I'd like to point out is that many famous early colonists, <laughs> such as, uh, you know, Fernand Cortez and, uh, as you mentioned before, Her Hernando de Soto, uh, they come from this region. Uh, so was there any reason that we have so many figures from the era, area? Extremadura, Tierra de Conquistadores. It's, uh, you know, my first book really kind of is about that, is that it addresses that question. Extremadura was a poor region. It didn't have a lot of resources. It had an economy that relied on mainly on stock raising and agriculture. Much of the best pasturage was monopolized by wealthy noble families. So in the 16th century, you see a lot of farmers ending up selling their land to hidalgos, you know, lower level nobles, clerics, and even members of more well-to-do Hidalgo families might find very few opportunities if they stayed on in Extremadura. So Extremadura is like one of these places that's kind of pushing people out. Mm -hmm. um, so even in the Hidalgo families, they might go into the church, they might go into the army because they weren't going to find anything at home. Um, and when you, know, you have the opening of the Indies following Columbus and, and so on, that becomes another option, sort of the equivalent of going into the military or the church. Like, oh, I can go to the Indies. Well, that certainly makes sense how he could have possibly ended up there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's stop to take a look at the economic and political environment of Cuba during Procayo's life. So uh, the years that we are looking at are from roughly uh, the 1510s to the 1540s. So hundreds at this time are flocking to the Caribbean in search of wealth and possibly fame. We have that old saying, God, gold, and glory. Uh, so what, what would life have been like for men in Cuba? It would have been tough. I think life was hard scrabble for most people. The available resources in gold and indigenous manpower only went so far. And so there really was a very limited number of people who really benefited from that. Already by the early 1530s, there were a lot of Spaniards who were still there. They were complaining of their poverty. They were talking about the fact that they don't have enough labor to do anything really um, and saying they wanted to leave to go to places like Peru. 
But at the same time, you also have Spaniards who are living in small towns, scattered around the islands. They were settling in. They were marrying indigenous women. They were having families. And these women then are able to remain rooted in the places that are familiar to them, which I think is, is significant. Um, breeding cattle and horses that could be shipped um, to the mainland, sometimes in exchange for indigenous slaves from Mexico or elsewhere, became a principal activity for many men. Um, so it was poor, I think you could say, for the most part. Um, but I think it's significant that most of the towns that were established then still exist today. So it's not as if you know there was this older idea that you know the Caribbean islands kind of cleared out as everyone went to Mexico and Peru. That's just not true. And as I said, these towns still exist today, Trinidad and Santo Espiritus and Santiago and so on. Go to Cuba and go to these places. So. so you did say that the towns are still there. So does that mean that there was a sense of stability that existed on the <laughs> island during this time? No. It was really a turbulent place. There was a lot of conflict. And as I said, especially you know when people began to experience hard times, they begin to think about going to Mexico, going to Peru, and a lot of the the other thing that really caused a lot of instability was people organizing major expeditions to go elsewhere. So first you had Hernando Cortes. He took many people from the island. He was in a comendero in Cuba. He took many people to Mexico on his ex- expedition in 1520. Uh, briefly, could you describe what a, an encomendero is oh, for our audience? Oh, certainly. Um, so the encomienda was an institution that was intended to provide Spaniards access to indigenous labor, a specific, you know, a, a specified group. Usually in this period, it's the, some cacique or Indian ruler with his people. That would be the group. Um, this labor was supposed to be available to them on a rotating basis. So in other words, this was different from enslavement um, in principle at least, uh, the indigenous people who belonged to the encomienda would continue to live in their own homes and produce their own subsistence, but it did not always work out that way. And in fact, there's people under so several different legal statuses who were laboring for Spaniards in these years. They could be servants, they could be part of encomiendas, they could be slaves, in effect, because of these different statuses, it kind of blurs. Mm-hmm. They often are treated much the same, even though legally they were different. Um, so, so yeah, the, the men who, were, who did not receive encomiendas or who received them and lost them were very resentful, and that led to you know, one of these incidents that I, I wrote about with Vasco Porcayo. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, people like Cortes, um, later than Hernando, uh, Panfilo de Narvaez, Hernando de Soto, they all organized major expeditions, taking with them many Spaniards as well as Indians. Um, and so this is another thing that, um, that probably contributed to the instability in the island. And then there was just constant disorder in the countryside. There was constant resistance on the part of Indians, um, Africans uh, who were brought, although... 
there weren't uh, the numbers of Africans who were taken to Cuba in the early years were not as large as as the numbers to Espanol or Puerto Rico for reasons we don't actually understand entirely. So with this in mind, we have a fairly unstable landscape. It seems like <laughs> a lot of people weren't really able to succeed in these areas. How did a Porcayo get his start on Cuba? Yeah, well, okay. First of all, he was a first conqueror because he went with Velasquez. So that gave him one advantage. His second advantage is that he enjoyed very high social status. Um, this is very meaningful to Spaniards. He was uh, a relative of the very high-ranking Duque de Feria. This is like the highest nobility in Spain. And because of these advantages, he received a substantial encomienda, um, you know, which gave him access to a, a pretty large number of Indian workers. So in 1521, uh, Porcayo appears to have been holding the office of Teniente de Justice or the Lieutenant Justice of the Peace in the towns of Trinidad, Sancti Spiritus, and San Cristobal de la Havana. Uh, so how would he have achieved this title? Yeah, th this was a strictly local office, and so Diego Velasquez received, uh, was appointed uh, lieutenant governor of Cuba. Um, they got, basically, he was governor of Cuba. They call him, he was called lieutenant governor because, I'm trying to think of his, the, you know, who, everyone was under the high court and president um, of the high court in Hispaniola. So you couldn't have a governor, but you could have a lieutenant governor, and that's what Velasquez was. Um, so I, I'm assuming that he would have appointed uh, Porcayo to that job. Um, Velasquez was lieutenant governor until he died in 1526, so he was kind of calling the shots. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the relationship between Velasquez and Porcayo is that it's said, although I haven't found a lot of documentation, is that Velasquez originally wanted Vasco Porcayo to go to Mexico, not Cortez. Mm. Porcayo was his first choice, and he wasn't really interested. So it seems like uh, Porcayo being, you know, a loyal follower of Velasquez during the first conquests, he definitely reaped the awards of, his, yes. of this. So definitely quite fascinating. Um, and so... It, it appears that during his tenure as the Justice of the Peace, a revolt occurs within one of these towns. And uh, how did this happen, and how did Porcayo do, deal with it? So th this revolt was really a minor episode, but it was one that fascinated me, and in part because of the discourse in which these ostensible rebels uh, invoked the revolt of what was called the Comuneros Revolt or the Revolt of the Comunidades, um, which was taking place more or less contemporaneously in Spain itself. Um, and so these men in Cuba basically revolted or tried to because they resented a reassignment of encomiendas. So the, they, and a, it, it, for them, it meant that a lot of them lost much of their labor force. Porcayo, however, did not. So he was not negatively affected. Um, so the men in Sancti Espiritus who found themselves on the losing end on, in this reassignment 
swore to resist, and they pledged to fight, I love this, one for all and all for one, in emulation of the comuneros in Segovia in Spain, even though the situation in Spain was entirely different. They were revolting for very different reasons than in Cuba, but you know, the people in Cuba identified with that revolt. Well, Porcayo was able to use both the power of his office and I would say his own personal entourage of kinsmen and retainers and put the revolt down quite swiftly. So, you know, to call it a revolt, like I said, it's probably too grand, but still it's a very interesting episode, particularly since it pitted Spaniard against Spaniard. Right. So following the dispelling of the Camuneros in this area, which, you know, uh, the revolt rose because Porcayo was already benefiting from land redistribution or encomienda redistribution. Porcayo seems to have benefited from this revolt, uh, taking, you know, wealth and labor for himself. Uh, Would this have been normal for the time? Sure. You you know, one of the really fascinating things to me uh, about studying the early Caribbean is that, of course, we think, obviously, in terms of conflict between Spaniards and Indians, Spaniards and blacks, and all of that existed. But there was a real class divide in Spanish society that took hold almost immediately. And it was different from the class divide in Spain itself, where, of course, you know, you have nobles, commoners, and so on. In this case, it's not really about who's noble and who isn't. It's who has personal connections, who has political advantages, who gets their hands on the goods first. And so there's a lot of tension within Spanish society itself uh, because there's a lot of resentment. And this continues, and this characterized Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, all these islands. You see these factions and tensions and it's really between sort of haves and have-nots. And, and, you know, it's ironic, of course, that a lot of people are leaving Spain because they are the have-nots, and then they come to this situation where they expect to have more opportunities, and guess what? <laughs> it's not there either. It must certainly have been pretty frustrating, I can imagine. <laughs> um, but now I'd like to veer towards Porcayo's domestic life. So given his position as one of the haves in this situation, a wealthy landowner, Porcayo did have interactions with uh, indigenous people and uh, black slaves that may have worked for him in, the, in, this, uh, in his encomendero. Uh, so how did Porcayo treat these individuals and did his treatment stand out at all? You know, I don't know how he treated his own workers. I, I really have seen no information on that whatsoever. Given the fact that he resorted to pretty extreme violence um, in dealing with other Cuban natives, not necessarily his own workers who did not cooperate with the new regime, I'm sort of guessing that you know, he, in his management of his indigenous and black workers and slaves, he also relied on intimidation and coercion because that seems to be his his forte. Could you tell me about any specific interactions that are recorded about his interactions with indigenous or uh, black individuals? Well, 
there was a very violent incident um, that he is, that's probably what he's most notorious for. I mean, many people who barely know about him know about this, um, where he undertook to punish uh, Indians who were, uh, according to him, eating earth, and which he saw as a means of committing suicide. Um, His concern was not humanitarian, but rather, if enough Indians commit suicide, we won't have a labor force. Uh, so he imposed, he undertook an extreme punishment, which I don't particularly feel like detailing on air because it's repugnant. Uh, but it was extremely violent. Um, and it succeeded in the sense that he intimidated Everyone, I think not just Indians, but Spaniards as well. They all knew what he was capable of doing. Um, and they didn't necessarily disagree. In other words, he, I mean, he was put under house arrest briefly. He had to go to the officials of the Audiencia and explain his actions and so on. But he never suffered any repercussions after that. That's absolutely fascinating that uh, a man could get away with this during this time. Uh, so these accounts of how Porcayo treated both Spaniards by taking away what what they had at the moment and, you know, uh, people that, you know, the natives of the island and people around him shows him to be a very violent man uh, who is very concerned with himself. Um, was this to be expected of early colonial men? I think he's on the high end of violence. And, and, and again, his treatment of the Indians who were, it, it, were he accused of eating earth was, I think, sadistic. I don't see how else one could, it doesn't matter that this was the early 16th century. It's sadistic. And, uh, and I've seen this in other places as well, Western Mexico and so on, that you, know, you have your sort of normal violence and then you have violence that is really just so over the top that, people notice. Um, so I think, you know, certainly not everyone was as violent, violent as he was, but at the same time, clearly there was widespread acceptance of the use of violence as a way to intimidate, control, and exploit Indians and blacks. There's no question about that. So um, moving along, this rather villainous man, uh, Porcayo, never appears to pursue political positions of high power. As, you know, he was an underling of Velasquez, who was lieutenant governor, it could be possible that, you know, he may want to pursue that if he wanted to. Why do you, but he never did. So why do you think this is? I think he could have, right? He could have um, gone to Cuba. I mean, could have gone to Mexico instead of Cortez. I really think that his interest was just in himself. He wanted to pursue his own interests, his own pleasures. Holding public office meant assuming responsibilities. It often meant incurring debts. Uh, and instead, by leaving all that aside, he could be a kind of warlord ruling over the countryside with virtually no interference. Um, and I think that's what he wanted and that's why he always ended up back in Cuba, even when he went other places, always back to Cuba. This is what, this was the life he wanted. Uh, surely an image is approaching the, many of our listeners' heads right now of a very violent, self-centered man, and a, a man who held considerable influence within the Caribbean. So 
where do we see this and how did he go about using the power that he had? Again, really for personal ends, he really, he's almost unknown outside of Cuba, other than, you know, the, the fact that he went with De Soto uh, to Florida. Um, for the most part, he really didn't have any lasting influence, I think, outside of Cuba. And even in Cuba itself, it, it's hard to say because we don't know that much in terms of the children he left behind and so on. Um, but he was happy to concentrate, as I said, on Cuba. That's it. That became his place. Um, I think he always preferred to operate on his own. And so this moves right into my next question. Um, despite the expectation of the time, it, it appears that Porcayo never married. Why do you believe this happened? Yeah, this is another thing that fascinates me because, again, a man of his status and position should have married, should have been interested in forming a family and assuring the con continuity of his lineage and all that kind of stuff that was very important to high-ranking people uh, of the Spanish nobility. Marriage represented stability and, and, and so on. Um, some high-ranking men in the early Caribbean actually went back to Spain to get married because there wasn't anyone suitable. He just wasn't interested. And I think that, again, that he just wanted a different sort of life for himself. Um, and that's why he went to the Caribbean, and that's why he stayed there, and he just wasn't interested in these kind of trappings of marriage and traditions, you know, associated with marrying someone of his own status. Um, I think he just didn't care. But it seems like he did have children. Um, <laughs> how and what did he do with them? Yeah, I don't, you know, he. Ha I know that one of his mestizo sons, Gonzalo Suarez de Figueroa, accompany him on, on the expedition with Soto to Florida. And he was among the survivors, and I believe then he did eventually return to Cuba. Um, he, there's a Cuban historian, Levi Marrero, who, who's written about Vasco Porcayo. Um, he said he called, you know, he said his, his mestizo children were incredibly numerous. I have no idea. There, you know, another one of these claims about Porcayo you know, was that he had married a high-ranking um, casica, you know, Indian ruler, and um, there's no evidence whatsoever for that. And could you confirm what a mestizo is? Um, so the mestizo children appeared very quickly in the Caribbean. Basically, uh, it, it was invariably a Spanish man and an indigenous woman. Um, and, of course, a lot of those kinds of um, relationships were coercive in nature. Um, not all of them were. Uh, so there are certainly, you know, there's certainly another number of marriages took place, and it's it seems fairly clear that in a lot of cases those were, you know, they were workable marriages. I'd, it's impossible to comment on how much affection there was and so on, but they were real marriages and stable unions and so on. Um, but because because initially there, of course, weren't large numbers of Spanish women. Yes, a lot of men married or otherwise had relations with indigenous women and the result with lots of mestizo children. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, as happens to everyone, and maybe uh, better for the world in this case, uh, Porcayo dies. Uh, 
Do we have any record of when or how this occurred? The best information I could find was that he probably had died by around 1550, which made him pretty old. I mean, he probably was close to 60 at least, had quite an active life. Um, Unfortunately, we have no will for him. A will might have revealed details about family relationships, about his children, about his economic circumstances. Wills are great, and we don't have one for him. So we don't really have that information. So what do you believe that the life of Porcayo and the influence within colonial Cuba says about the society that he existed within and what was expected of man, men within the newly colonized new world? Well, I think his life and career really exemplify the range of opportunities that Spaniards sought and that some found. As I said, he was fortunately positioned uh, because of his participation in the conquest and because of his very high status. Um, the nature of opportunities, of course, changed quite rapidly over time, and he was an early arrival. And so, as I said, with his connections, his high status, and his basic shrewdness, Porcayo was able to maintain himself in the fashion to which he aspired. And so one of the things that I think is really maybe underemphasized in studying these early years is that the Spanish crown depended on the initiative and individualism of men like him and Cortes and Hernando de Soto and so many others. They were the ones who were going to carve out and maintain Spanish dominion in this faraway territory. For that reason, the the king was willing to overlook, at least to some extent, some of the excesses that were being committed um, because these men at least nominally maintained their allegiance to the crown and they were really doing the crown's business often in very violent ways. Well, quite a fascinating story. Uh, uh, Porcayo, a man who ultimately driven by the pursuits of pleasure and uh, ultimately villainy, Uh, achieves a life in a new world. So thank you, Dr. Ida Altman, and thank you for tuning tuning into Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. Please tune in every two weeks for a new episode with a new expert. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. (laughs)